would you please stand? If you can, or if you can't, please stand in your hearts. Say these words after me. May the words of my mouth, oh, pardon me, wait, wait. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock and redeemer. Just put a section of Psalm 107, beginning at the verse numbered 27, concluding at the verse numbered 31. They reeled and they staggered. They were at the end of their wits. Then they called to the Lord, and the Lord delivered them from their distress. <laughs> he calmed the storm and the crashing waves. He hushed. Oh, they were so glad. And the Lord guided them to the haven of their desire. Oh, let them, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wondrous deeds for mankind. The very words of God. You may be seated. Our message time today, as we're, uh, I was challenged to uh, help you uh, maybe set the table a little bit as you're going through this immersive Bible reading, which I think is amazing. Uh, I, I think that's one of the most wonderful opportunities that you have to jointly read God's Word. If you're not part of it, I would encourage you to be part of it. Um, and then think about uh, what, what, what's God saying here? Help me to understand. And you know, if I can just say this, um, it's okay if you leave your group conversations with more questions than you have answers. It's all right. It's all right. So this morning, we're going to be looking at, um, and I thought I would, as I struggled, because the section is 13 chapters in Exodus, which is one of my favorite books. And of my favorite book, this is one of my favorite sections of the book. Um, so I thought, how are we going to approach it? Well, I thought I would approach it um, this way, God's introduction. I was with you a couple of weeks ago, and, and we talked about God's introduction, and we talked about God uh, introducing himself as, as God, king, and judge. And then we talked about in chapter 2 that God is Lord God. And, and that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and that's his compassion side. And, and we also mentioned to you that the Bible is designed to answer a question. The question is not does God exist, but which God do you serve? Because in the ancient period, they had hundreds of gods. And quite frankly, in the ancient Near East, I don't think there's another culture that had more gods and more temples than ancient Egypt. So it's a real strong place for God to come and make a statement of who he is and which God do you serve. And the answer to that question, the way you determine which God you're going to serve is serve whichever God exists and serve that God in as much as they've earned it. You don't have to serve many more, you don't have to serve many less. Well, if, I, if you allow me just for a moment, <laughs> that's why I follow Jesus. He's earned it. He's earned it. And because of Jesus, I have the love of the Father I have the filling of the Spirit, and I have a hope that never dies. 
So God introduces himself, and then, and then we see the, the story of the fall, and things go bad, and they go sour very quickly. But none of the things that happen thwart the compassionate, loving, determinist idea of God. He has a plan, and, 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 and the, the, the fall at the tree, the killing of a brother, and after that, things go even worse, if you can imagine it. And it comes to a point in the text where God is grieved that he made mankind. His heart was filled with pain. But Noah was a righteous man. Did I tell you in Hebrew they don't have capital letters? So when you read that text, that God's heart was filled with pain, and Noah, which means comfort, is a righteous man. And you and I are in the eyes of God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because the one who comforts God's heart is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And after the story of Noah, it seems like God starts to assert himself in a way into the story like he hadn't before. He finds a man named Abram, and with this man he makes a covenant. And now there's a shift, because now with making this covenant, you can begin to ask these questions. Who is this God? What has he done? And what is he promising? In fact, that might be three good questions as you, in your small groups. Who is this God in these passages? What is he doing? And what are his promises? Well, Abram has a son. <laughs> and, uh, um, but, but Abram and Sarai, out of Abram, God makes Abraham, and God did that. And then, and then out of Abraham, out of the barrenness of these two, God brings a child. God did that. And the book of Genesis ends with, with telling you, and you need to know, the question is, why do I need to know that, that there were 70 in all? Well, I, I'm not sure why you need to know that, but I'll lay this down. You don't have to pick it up. The rabbis say that at that time there were 70 pagan nations. That, isn't that interesting? There's a, a, one of God's chosen ones for every pagan nation because God doesn't want anyone to perish. And so, so that's where the story concludes. And God's introduction was to his people is to a family. But now, now we're in the book of Exodus. And now, that family has turned into a nation. And it's been several hundred years, at least 400. So I'm going to argue that God's introduction continues. Is it working? No, 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 not yet. No, back, back. There, continues. Oh. No, back, back, back. This is a sly little apparatus right here. All right, God's introduction, God's introduction continues. Because you're going to meet Israel, this, or pardon me, you're going to meet the Hebrews at a time of great need. And I want you to understand, in my opinion, God did that. And out of this time of great need... God is going to give a time of amazing deliverance, and God's going to do that. Now, if I could place this message in the psalm, the portion of the psalm that I recited, I would place this message or the portion of scripture that we're going to be looking at precisely at the place where God begins to quiet the storm to a whisper, where he begins to still and hush the cross, crushing waves. We're, we're not quite at the point of calm here. In fact, 
we're at the threshold of a storm. So we're in Exodus. And, and, and there's, there's, there's chaos. A pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. Then, after that, God is going to introduce himself to his people. I struggled with this, and so what I'd like to do with the remainder of our time is I want to talk about how God introduces himself to us in Egypt through Moses on God's terms. First of all, in Egypt. Why Egypt? What is Egypt? My friends, there has never been a culture like the Egyptian culture whose influence spans not decades, not centuries, but millennia. And the reason it spans all that time is because if you have a look, a satellite view of North Africa, you're going to notice to the west, Sahara Desert. To the east, intense desert. There's just this one ribbon of life called the Nile River. And as it goes north and flows into the Mediterranean Sea, it deltas. And some of the richest earth on God's good earth is there. They could grow anything. You have to understand that in the ancient Near East, in the ancient period, that if you couldn't feed your family, if you couldn't feed your wife, and you would, she did get pregnant, chances are she'd miscarry. She couldn't carry it to term because of malnutrition. But not in Egypt. Not in Egypt. All that fertility. And you know, it hardly rains in Egypt. I think in Alexandria in the north, maybe six inches a year. Cairo, four inches a year. Luxor, not even an inch. Aswan, it doesn't rain. And when I talk about rain, it's not what we get in West Michigan. Uh, 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 uh. It's kind of a mist, a light little mist. So I love bringing people to Cairo because as we're driving, say, you see all these trees? It's not because of underground sprinkling. It's all because of groundwater. It's all because of irrigation. And because of that rich silt and that water, there's amazing food. And in time, the Egyptians understood that the gods must have done this. They built pyramids. Speaking of the great creation, in fact, even today, we look at leadership and we talk about pyramid structures. At the top of that pyramid is someone called Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh does not mean king. He functions as a king. But Pharaoh means the great house. And understand as you read your text and as you discuss this, because you're going to come to points of the text where God hardens Pharaoh's heart and you say, well, how can Pharaoh stand against God? But you have to understand in the text, in my opinion, Pharaoh is not a man. He's a God. And God is introducing himself to the Egyptians, and he's introducing himself to the Hebrews, and he's introducing himself to you and me as well, as sovereign over all. The author of everything has authority over everything, but you see in Egypt, and for over 400 years, and my friends, the United States hasn't even been a country for 300. For over 400 years, it's all Pharaoh. It's all about Pharaoh. It's all about Pharaoh. It's all about Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is a god. He's a man, but he's a god. And Pharaoh's family are demigods. So that's Egypt in a nutshell. 
Then we have, God's going to introduce himself in Egypt through Moses. Moses. All of a sudden, you have this story. It's a time when there's infanticide. Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. There's a whole sermon with that. Suffice it to say that he rejects Joseph and the benefits that came through Joseph because that was under a previous administration. This Pharaoh is going back to worshiping the gods of Egypt, not the, doesn't recognize the God of Joseph. And so we have a strong polemic. It's in that time that Pharaoh realizes this altogether powerful person with all this wealth and all this power, all that's resulted in him being more afraid, not more comfortable, not more assured. I would argue that that's a measure. That's a measure that holds today. If all the wealth and all the power only causes us to fear, fear of losing it, then for me then, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof isn't applied to me. Because the world is mine and the fullness thereof. And that's what it was for Pharaoh. So Pharaoh saw these Hebrews multiplying and he starts infanticide. One of the things that we do when we go to Luxor, I hesitate to tell you because it's one of the secrets of the trip. Uh, my friend Otley, we get, go into his felucca and if the group's bigger, we get two feluccas. They're Nile sailboats. And we'll sail the Nile up to a certain point and then we'll beach it or just about beach it and then um, we'll get out of the boat and we'll, I'll, I'll lead them into the Nile. And um, uh, so we go into the Nile. And I, but I'm out there and I'm guarding. Because if they go too far, the current of the Nile is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And now the Nile's tamed since 1970 with the Aswan Dam. It doesn't flood like it did in the ancient period, so it's tamed. But the current is, and, and not a few authors talk about how you can drop a baby into the Nile, it'll sink, it's gone. It's gone. Just like that. Well, this couple in Exodus 6, you don't, you don't know their name originally. I think because God wants you to focus on the baby. But you'll, you'll come to learn that the name of Moses' father is Amram. Amram means exalted people. His mother is Jochebed. That means the Lord glorifies. Isn't that interesting? Exalted people the Lord glorifies. That's the house that God chooses to put Moses. It's interesting because later on, God would have a deliverer and God just wouldn't randomly put his deliverer in any house. No, he puts, it, he puts his deliverer in the womb of the woman most favored and she is betrothed to marry a man who is Sadiq, righteous. So Moses is, she, Jochebed finds that she's pregnant. She already has Aaron. She already has Miriam. Pharaoh hadn't had the edict yet then, but now he has this edict. And when this little baby was born, the text tells you that he was fine. Certainly the NIV tells you that. But in Hebrew, the word for fine is tov. Say tov. Tov is the Hebrew word for good. And now you circle back to Genesis 1, when it is good, when it is good, when it is good. This baby, Amram and Jochebed, exalted people the Lord glorifies, they recognized in this baby something of the purpose of God, something of the destiny of God, something for the future of his people. No, we're, 
I don't care how strong the current is, Amram, we're not throwing this baby in the Nile. No way. No, sweetheart, no. Keep him at home, we'll hide him. And they can only go for so long. But then, then Moses is crying and, and they can't, they, so he's a baby, he's three months old and what, what, what are you doing? Pretty soon he's gonna be a year old and then he's gonna be twos and then terrible twos and how do we manage this? So somebody comes up with the idea and I don't know if you ever wondered about this. We're gonna make a basket, put them in the basket and throw them in the Nile. I'm thinking, what kind of answer is that? Really? Throw them in a basket, throw them in a... But you see, they didn't throw them in a basket. The Hebrew word that they put him in is called a teva. Say teva. Teva. Okay? You encountered this word one other time in the text when you were reading Genesis. Because that's precisely the vessel that God told Noah to build. There it's translated as ark. It's a teva. And what is a teva? A teva is a vessel that is crewed, C-R-E-W-E-D, by the deity. All Noah did on that boat, because it didn't have a rudder, all Noah did on the boat was feed the animals. <laughs> Take care of the kids. No, no, God steered that. And the Hebrew is very deliberate. God placed the ark on Mount Ararat. And the Hebrew is very deliberate where that ark is placed in the bulrushes. Hmm, that's interesting. Now, here's something I just gotta tell you. No, I'll wait with this. So he's placed in the bulrushes. Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. And she goes over, she sees the basket, opens it up, a baby, okay? She picks up the baby, and something happens in her heart. I don't know, but she falls in love with that baby. And she brings that baby to her father, Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh looks at this baby, and he knows immediately that this baby is a Hebrew baby. How does he know? He knows because this baby's been circumcised. You see, the Egyptians also circumcised. They circumcised when young men were entering puberty, and at that time, as they're entering puberty, manhood, they would be circumcised, and then they would have a hairlock cut off. I'll show you a hairlock in just a moment. They'd have a hairlock cut off. So any baby that's uncircumcised is an Egyptian baby. Uh, pardon me, any, yeah, it's an Egyptian baby. By the way, when you read Exodus 4 and you find that Moses just coming down Sinai and Sapori, God wants to kill Moses, and Sapori's antidote to that was circumcising the babies, then you got to ask yourself, Moses, why didn't you circumcise your babies? Because Moses understood, I circumcised my sons, they're slaves. Everybody knows they're going to be a Jew, they're a Hebrew. And Sapori circumcises the babies. Why? The boys. Why? Because I firmly believe you cannot go out with God's message unless you, unless you have God's mark. No, you have to have the mark. 
It's interesting, later on in the book of Judges, we'll have Joshua going across the Jordan River, right? Jericho. One of the first things they do is mass circumcision. Isn't that interesting? I don't know how medically attuned you all are, but let me just tell you from a pastoral point of view, circumcision is kind of a once and done. So why aren't there children circumcised? Well, you see, the parents of those children were a generation that says, we can't take that land. And God says, I'm sorry, then everyone 20 and over, I didn't want you to take it, I was just gonna give it to you. And you have this circumcision with Joshua. Before you go out in God's name, you have to have his mark. The mark of God today is the circumcision of the heart to be filled with the Spirit of God, in my opinion. So Pharaoh lifts up this Hebrew baby, and he can see exactly that this is not an Egyptian. This is exactly the kind of baby I'm drowning right now. So here's your question. Why does Pharaoh adopt a Hebrew baby boy when he's drowning Hebrew baby boys? Well, I'm not sure, but I got a guess. Let me give it to you. This is old. When I say old, even pre-dynastic. Uh, 3500, 4000 BC. The story I'm about to tell you spans all of Egyptian history. Okay. I'll show you a pharaoh in the old kingdom period. I'll show you a pharaoh in the new kingdom period. And this story is relevant all that time. And this is the story. The story goes this way. Uh, now, there we go. There's a god. His name is Osiris. He has um, a sister, or a brother, whose name is Set. They have a sister whose name is Isis, okay? There's three of them. Now, <clears throat> Isis and Osiris get married. Set doesn't like this at all. Set is threatened. There's a number of things that Set does we don't have time to get into here, but for our purposes, Set is diametrically opposed to this union and anything that comes from it. Set, uh, Osiris, and um, Isis have a baby. The baby is Horus. Horus is a falcon-headed deity, and, um, and Horus, in time, will become the protector of Pharaoh. Sometimes Horus is manifest this way, and this is the going into the temple at Edfu, don't know if you've been there, but there's two magnificent statues there that they excavated there of, of Horus with the double crown of upper and lower Egypt on his head. And sometimes Horus is depicted this way, as a statue of a man with a, with a falcon head on top of it. Oh my, my dear people, we could just nest here and teach just on that, but we'll keep going. So there's Horus. Horus is the protector of Pharaoh. So if you were to come with me, day one, we'd walk around the pyramids, which are old kingdom period. One of those pyramids is, is constructed by Kafra, uh, the middle one, the son of Khufu, the father of Menkaura. And when we walk into the museum, you would see Kafra sitting like that. And then I would have you walk around Kafra, and what would you see is you would see Horus 
protecting him. Horus is the protector of Pharaoh. There's another place in the museum we'd be walking to, and we would see this statue. This is a statue of Ramses II. Maybe the Ramses, the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Ramses II is a little boy, because you can see his finger to his mouth. And I don't know if you can see so well, no, not on this one. To the, to, um, to the right of his head from looking this way, to the right, is his hairlock. It's Ramses as a little boy, and who's behind him? Horus. Horus. Huh. Isn't that interesting? So Pharaoh is approached by his daughter, carrying this little baby, and Pharaoh looks at it and says, it's a Hebrew baby. But I didn't tell you, is when Isis found out that Set was angry and wanted to kill Horus, do you know what she did? She made a basket. She put it in the reeds. In fact, if you would come to, with me, I would show you Egyptian temples and all the columns in every Egyptian temple I've been in, and I've been in pretty much all of them, are all reeds. I talked to this young Egyptologist at, at the Ramesseum, and she was sitting there, and I asked her to teach our group, and she says, oh, what you are in right now is the nursery of Horus. So God brings his Moses, puts him in a godly family, and this godly family is savvy enough because they know he's a deliverer. They know something special about this baby, and they put him in a basket, and they put him in the reeds, so when this Egyptian girl sees him, she takes him, and she doesn't see a Hebrew. She sees baby Horus, and what does Horus do? Horus is the defender of Pharaoh, and what does Pharaoh mean? Pharaoh means the great house. He was right. He was just wrong about the house. It was the house of God that this one was going to deliver from. Well, then in time, Moses gets to a point. He grows up. He's counseled by his parents that he's a Hebrew. He's in the Holy of Holies as a priest, arguably a high priest in the family of Pharaoh. And Moses has got one foot between the other. And then the book of Hebrews says Moses comes to a place where he gives up the sins of Egypt. And I would argue that's about 40 years old. And then Moses flees into the wilderness for another 40 years. In the Parakeavot, which is the sayings of the fathers, um, uh, it's a medieval document, so I'll lay it down. You don't have to pick it up. For it. But all numbers, they, they look at numbers in the Bible, and they, they look at numbers, and they say, what's the significance of this number? 20 is adulthood. 30 is full strength. 40 is understanding. Why do you need to know 40, 40, 40? Well, the first 40, in my opinion, is he understood Egypt. And the second 40, he understood shepherding. And now we have the burning bush. God introduces himself in Egypt, most powerful, influential, pyramid structure, leadership, community, through Moses, in the world but not of the world, and God introduces them on his own terms. What I'd like you to do in the time we have left, would you get your Bibles out, please? Pull your Bibles out and come with me to Exodus chapter 6. We're going to go into Exodus chapter 5 a little bit. Exodus chapter 6. I think, 
I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, oh my, George. I'd like to think I was a student of the text. My mom would say, George, too soon old, too late wise. I look at this and I'm thinking, oh man. Really, it's your fault. You should have done this immersive Bible study about 25 years ago and invited me to come and study and, and lead you in it. So I passed the plane, learned that from Adam. Okay, um, Exodus 5. Are you with me? So what, let me tell you the background very quickly. Moses has been doing the sheep. He sees the bush. Take off your sandals. I am that I am. Who said he sent me? Okay, I don't want to go. 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 Go. Aaron's coming. Moses goes. God wants to kill, kill Moses, the family, the circumcision. So, and in that, um, uh, God, God says, so, says to Moses, uh, now, uh, listen, I've given you signs. Show them to Pharaoh. Show them to Pharaoh. Um, and Moses uh, goes and uh, uh, and, and Moses goes to Pharaoh. Moses appeared before Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, uh, let my people go. We want to worship our God three days in the wilderness. Have no idea where Moses came up with that. Have no idea. We want to go, let our people go. Pharaoh says, you know, you got time for that kind of thinking? You guys are just, you got too much time in your hand. I want you to make bricks without straw. So now you got same amount of bricks. Same, in fact, Pharaoh's introduced, the Egyptians are introduced, introduced to you because they treat God's people ruthlessly. The word for ruthlessly there in Hebrew is peric, say peric. That word for ruthlessly is not because the Egyptians wanted more bricks, they wanted less Hebrews. Well, there's a longer narrative, and <laughs> so the Egyptian taskmasters, slave drivers, it goes right down to the Hebrew foreman. And they are coming back to Moses and saying, what have you done? What have you done? Moses is not exactly happy either. And we pick up the story there. Follow me, verse 22, chapter 5. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? By the way, the word for trouble is way too soft. You know what the word for trouble there is? It's the same word for the tree of the knowledge of the good end. That's the word. Why have you brought evil upon these people? Is that why you sent me? Keep asking yourself because we have the covenant, okay? Who he is, what he's done, and what he's promised. Is that why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble upon this people, evil upon this people, and you've not rescued your people at all. By the way, when you read these chapters, one thing you're not going to read is that Moses did any of the signs that he was commanded to do. Isn't it interesting? Why wouldn't he? Well, let's keep reading. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, to the great house. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out. And God said to Moses, I am the Lord. If you had your own Bibles, I'd circle that. Because you're going to see this statement, I am the Lord, three times in this short little passage. 
I am the Lord. I appear to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, covenant. You see, this covenant is a driver throughout the entire book of Exodus. This covenant is absolutely huge. Now, he loves his people, but he's made a promise on his own terms, in his own way. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are slaving, and I remembered my, what does your Bible say? Yeah, amen. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. That's the second one. Oops. Sorry, I got so excited, I left it. I am the Lord. And now, God is going to make seven promises. Isn't that an interesting number? Seven promises. Let's read them. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and a mighty axe of judgment. And I will take you as my own people. And I will, let's just pause here. This is so strong. Those first fours, I wills, are the four cups of Passover. So when I was with you last time, Pastor Bill was leading us in communion. And when he took the cup, he says, this is the third cup. He referenced the cup of redemption. So these promises are huge to God's people. That I will bring you out. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you. Uh, I, I, will, um, I will take you to be my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with an upland, uplifted hand to give to Abram and Isaac and Jacob, covenant again, and I will give it to you. And it's punctuated with, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I'm the one who's bringing you out. I'm the Lord, I'm freeing you from being slaves because you see for 400 years you have a slave mentality. Now I've raised up Moses who wasn't a slave, he was in the house of Pharaoh, so he knows what it's to be large and in charge, which could be a problem. I will redeem you. In other words, there's gonna be a cost to me bringing you out. I, I, I will take you to be my people. The word there for taking is I will marry you. Talk to me about Mount Sinai. Jewish weddings to this day are patterned after Sinai. And I will bring you into the land. He will guide them to the harbor of their desire. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. It's not God who makes this covenant. It's not God who's doing it. Well, it is God but it's the Lord. All right. 
I just got to tell you, I'm going to buy the tech team coffee because they, they blocked out the clock. <laughs> um, what are the takeaways? In my opinion, I've thought about this. The number one takeaway is if you're going to be a leader in God's charge, <laughs> you have to have a high pain threshold. You have to have a high pain threshold. Secondly, understanding Moses the way I do, or have come to understand him, I might be wrong, but Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household where everything was about Pharaoh. Pharaoh was your mediator to the gods. Pharaoh was himself a god. And everybody served Pharaoh. It was all about Pharaoh. So when Moses left Sinai, I'm not sure why he didn't do what God asked him to do, is throw down the staff right away. Why didn't he change the Nile to blood right away? Why, why did we have extra bricks? And the second thing I learned from this story, from, I just offer it to you, is that God wants to make abundantly clear to Moses, and we gotta get this one clear out of the gate. Moses, I don't want my people to follow you. I want my people to follow me. In order for them to follow me, Moses, you have to follow me. And you have to tell them that you're not the real leader here. God is the leader. I just walk at the front of the group. So Moses, identify with your people, yes. But Moses, you need to align with me. That's huge. That's huge. I wish I would have heard, I wish I would have preached this years ago. Too soon old, too late wise. And the third thing, when the kids were being told the 10 plagues and spoiler alert, see there's a part of me that wishes, I wish we could just wipe everything clear and we were reading Exodus as if it were the first time. But you all know this making extra bricks, this crying out, and they are legitimately suffering, guys. They're legitimately suffering. And God's looking at Moses. He says, I know you're in a storm, but there's more storms coming. There's more storms coming. And they reeled and they staggered. They were at their wit's end. Then they called to the Lord. And he brought them out of their distress. The storm he quieted to but a whisper. The crashing waves to a hush. (laughs) And then they were glad. Oh, let them give thanks. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his love and all the wondrous deeds he's done because it is this Lord who will guide them to their harbor of rest. Enjoy your read. Enjoy your conversations. If I can bless you, I will try. I'm going to stick around at the front here. So if you're a leader in one of those studies and you want to ask me some questions, that can go further, I'm here for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Pray with me, please. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, sovereign over all. Bless and thank you, Lord, for this morning, this time, this day, this people. Oh, your word. They are words of life. And Lord, as you continue to introduce yourself to us personally as King of the universe, judge of all things, but first and foremost, Lord God, the compassionate God, you now introduce yourself to us as a people. And you are raising up leaders And Lord, help us to pray for those leaders to see that they draw them so close to you. Increase their pain threshold. Make them wise and gracious. And Father, quite frankly, when I'm asking prayer for our leaders, I don't think there's a single one of us in this room that isn't the leader. We all are. We all are. May it be in increasing measure that people would see Jesus in us. To your honor, to your glory, in his name. And all God's people said,